Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's critical that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping to solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. For nearly a century, Rolex has backed explorers and innovators who strive to understand and protect our natural world. In this series, we'll dive into the stories of those people who are at the forefront of the quest to keep the planet perpetual. On this episode, I get to speak with Kirsten Forsberg, who has dedicated her life to protecting the giant manta rays of Peru. Kirsten, who's a world-renowned expert on the topic, became a Rolex laureate in 2016 and has greatly helped safeguard this endangered species by working with local communities to protect it. My name is Kirsten Forsberg, and I'm a conservation biologist and social entrepreneur from Peru. So hi, Kirsten. Uh... How did you become interested in marine conservation? So it really started when I was a kid, and I always was very passionate about nature and about animals, and I had this huge collection of you know books on marine animals and animals from all around the world. I went on to study biology here at a public university in Peru, and it was just kind of like the next logical step while I was studying was to get into a lot of volunteering opportunities. So I worked as a volunteer on sea turtle conservation, and that really brought me to be really active in this field and also to start learning about local communities that were in close contact with marine environments and how they were jeopardized as well with the challenges that marine environments were facing. And in 2007, I went on to form my own sea turtle conservation project. So really, as a foundation of this uh, sea turtle project came a lot of other ideas, a lot of other collaboration on the ground. And that was how Planeto Sano started. I was 22 years old when I started the organization, and we've been growing ever since. It's pretty remarkable to start an organization like that so early. And, and I think it's a slightly uh, different path than many other marine biologists or conservationists. You know, I feel like a lot of people become engaged primarily in the science at first and then slowly engage the the public. Yeah. It's interesting that you've basically been working with the public from the very beginning. I definitely started with an academic background in terms of science, right? So I was studying biology, I was reading papers, I was going to many libraries. But I think it, it just became clear from the moment I went to field that you need to work with people if you really want conservation to succeed. I think this was also very much part of me being young. I was 22 and I was out at field and I really wanted to learn. And of course, I I had some knowledge about sea turtles, for example, but I knew that at my age, I wasn't an expert, right? So I really wanted to learn from everybody. And, and that everybody included the fishermen. It included the other youth that had lived in the area for all their lives. And that was really the basis for all the rest of the work that we've done in Benito Center ever since, because it's really about putting people at the core of generating scientific information, of sharing knowledge, of educating others. Um, it's really focusing on people. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting because it sounds like you approached that 
in much the same way that any scientist works, which is just through through curiosity. I mean, you wanted to learn and you felt like that was the best way to learn. But it's but it's interesting that you've taken that approach where so many other scientists focus strictly on the science. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I also think that there's this component of wanting to create change. In in my case, I wanted to investigate because I wanted to make sure that there was a long-term change in the way that oceans were being managed and the way that people were relating to sea turtles, for example. When did you turn your focus from sea turtles to manta rays? This one day in 2012, we came across the giant mantas and fishermen started reporting to us that they were seeing these magnificent animals out in the ocean. And, and of course, I was startled, right? Because I had never heard about these huge giants out in Peruvian waters, and they weren't a priority in Peru at all. The regular citizens didn't even know that they existed in Peru. Can you describe uh, diving with a manta ray for the first time? So I still remember that day. <laughs> it, it's just incredible because you see the manta from the boat. And in, in our cases, we go out with fishermen and we're patrolling the area. And then you suddenly see this, this huge animal that's on the surface of, of the water just floating there. And with its fins, you know, very slightly out of the water. And then um, you get in. Of course, you have to get in in a very calmful way, right? But then when you approach the manta, the manta is extremely smart and extremely intelligent and extremely curious. So you're in the water with this majestic animal that's so different to you, but at the same time, you have this connection that's so close. And and the mantis just kind of like welcoming you and, and it looks at you with its huge eyes, um, just kind of trying to understand what that weird creature is that just got into the water. And I, I still remember that that date. Maybe you can feel at the beginning a bit nervous if you, you find the manta for the first time. But then just once you're in there and just captivated by this experience, it, it just changes. It just changes you forever. As Kirsten focused her work on protecting manta rays, she realized that there was a real need for educating people about ocean conservation. Can you describe the giant mantas more? I feel that sometimes when they're in the water, it's kind of like they're flying because they move so gracefully. And one of my favorite experiences at all times from being out at field was seeing a huge amount of mantas just breaching out in the air. And you're talking about an animal that can be, you know, seven meters from wingtip to wingtip. Mantas are filter feeders, so they're, they're completely harmless. They'll just open their mouth and they'll cruise the waters and they'll take in, you know, the water and, and taking in the water, they'll, they'll feed on these tiny plankton. I mean... It sounds like you're describing something much like a whale, you know, a giant creature that's very peaceable. Yeah, and they have this this huge brain, like in comparison to their their body size. So it's known that that giant mantas are kind of even social as well. Like they interact between themselves. Um, the thing is that we don't understand them enough, right? But they have a very complex um, 
behavior and, and population that we really need to understand if we want to conserve them better, and especially considering the fact that these are endangered creatures, right? And what this means is that if we don't do something, you know, quickly, we do have the risk to to lose them in, in certain places, right? So it, it really is a matter of, of urgency for us to do more about manta conservation. Why are giant mantas in danger? One of the largest threats that the manta rays face is bycatch or incidental capture. And so what this means is that the fishermen are going out and they're, you know, setting their nets and they don't want to capture the mantas, but the mantas get entangled in the nets anyway. And so if we don't avoid those interactions, if we don't work with the fishermen to make sure that the mantas are safely released, then that is a huge threat to the population. And, and especially considering the fact that this species takes very long to reproduce. So we're talking about an animal that will reach the age of maturity between ages 7 and 10, and will have only one pup once it reaches the age of maturity at every, every reproductive cycle. So it's not like a fish that will reproduce quickly and that can kind of self-sustain um, despite overexploitation. Yeah, so when you've been talking about the relatively low birth rate and kind of long lifespan mm -hmm. of giant mantas, Mm -hmm. I was struck by something that, that I remember reading a long time ago that's really stayed with me that had to do with the human expansion into North America, you know, 10,000 years ago or something, mm -hmm. and, and the subsequent extinction of all the megafauna in North America. And uh, I remember the book I was reading just had a little math laid out where if a human population came through, you know, small bands of hunter-gatherers and they killed just a few mammoths a season, basically that's enough that over the course of two or three generations, the birth rate drops low enough that, you know, it can no longer support itself. And ever since reading that, I've kind of thought about it with all kinds of conservation issues that we face today, because you see that with elephants, you see that with rhinos, uh, you know, like the remaining megafauna on earth. Yep. And and now hearing you describe the giant mantis, I'm like, it's just another example of megafauna, you know, with very long lifespans, you know, they just don't yeah. have that many, that many offspring. But if you kind of like turn it the other way around, like megafauna are also extremely charismatic, right? So we can use them as, as flagship species in order for people to understand that they have a role within the ecosystem and that if we conserve them, like many other species would, would also be conserved. So it really is thinking about this interconnection. If we wipe out one species, others will be affected and we will be affected as well. So you're saying that the biggest immediate threat to giant mantas is, is overfishing well, or, or bycatch, you know, accidental fishing? I mean, definitely. For example, one of the things that we've been working on is with local fishermen in Peru and understanding uh, how mantas are being entangled in their fishing nets. And one thing to understand is that this is a problem that's not just for the mantas. This is a problem that's also a problem faced by local communities. So fishermen call me so frequently talking about how their nets are being damaged because of these interactions and they're losing money. And if we want to change this, this challenge of bycatch, it's really considering the fact that if we avoid bycatch and interactions, we will not just benefit mantas, but we will benefit the fishing industry and the local low, low income, you know, small scale fishers that really depend on, on these livelihoods as well. At the end, I think it's really important to notice the fact that our planet doesn't have different oceans, right? It's, it's not a plural thing. It's, it's one big ocean that's interconnected um, and that we need to interconnect ourselves as well in order to make sure that it's, it's all protected. That's an interesting idea that I've never really thought of, but, but you're right, it is just one big ocean. 
Yeah, it is one ocean. So, so that's why we,、uh, we always say like ocean, right? Like World Ocean Day. Like there's this big movement as well to take out the S of oceans because it, it is one big ocean, and and it it is really about joining efforts to protect this one big ocean that our planet depends on, right? Because the ocean is is what gives us life on on the planet. It's, it's our planet's main life support system. And and how did、uh, receiving the the Rolex awards help you work on your projects? For me, the Rolex Awards have changed everything. I mean, before we were working so hard on the ground, but we were really, you know, a small scale organization that we still are a, a small organization, but that was very much focused on working locally within the things that we were doing. And then through these years, like having the impact of the Rolex Awards has really transformed our local voice. And given it really the the platform and the possibility to have a global impact and and to have a larger voice and to show how our small model in northern Peru can be something that others can learn from across the world and and that we can maybe impact across the world. So it, it really has、uh, changed our work in in a positive way, but it's also opened up this huge. Array of opportunities and allowed us to have like this huge new vision and dream that that we can we can actually impact the ocean as a whole globally, not just in in our own country, our own community. Yeah, I mean the the value of inspiration like that is is hard to hard to quantify. But can you tell me about any of your other、uh, Rolex laureates that you've worked with? I've been really fortunate to collaborate with Dr. Barbara Block. She's a fellow Rolex Awards laureate, and she is based at Stanford University. And her expertise is focused on on t- using technology for ocean science and for ocean conservation. And through support from Rolex, we were able to develop a new collaboration in which we tagged several giant manta rays in Peru. So this collaboration has really、um, helped us understand the behavior of, of giant mantas. But beyond working with Barb,、um, just in general, like the Rolex laureates are a huge inspiration. And what I really love about this network is that these are people that are just on the cusp of creating innovation and change, and and really transforming how things work on multiple levels. With her organization, Planeta Oceano, Kirsten has expanded the scope of manta ray conservation to include many layers of Peruvian society, from scientists to fishermen. Can you tell me more about Planeta Oceano? I always say that we're focused on two things. Our work is very、um, participatory, and our work is also very multidisciplinary. It's really about working with the people on the ground as well, with citizen scientists, with fishermen, for example, that can report what's going out in the water, with、uh, youth that can patrol their own beaches, and what we really do is we connect people. So, so for example, we have fishermen that are collecting samples out in the water, and then we're taking those samples out to you know PhD researchers in a laboratory. And ultimately, if we don't consider the fact, especially in in low income、uh, communities such as that one that we work with, if we don't consider the fact that 
We also need to develop market-based approaches for conservation. The fact that fishermen need to sustain their livelihoods, that we need to provide them with additional tools to increase their income and to have sustainable development, um, it's, it's going to be a very hard path for conservation. So if you're going to tell people, for example, don't harvest a giant manta, you have to give them an alternative. In, in our case with giant mantas, giant mantas weren't uh, a resource that fishermen were strictly depending on. But we said, okay, we're going to, you know, make sure that mantas aren't captured anymore, but we are going to help fishermen develop community-based ecotourism. That's, that's, that's awesome. It really goes beyond the environment focus. It, it really is about transforming communities as a whole and, um, and giving them skills and, and connections as a whole. It's a complicated approach for a complicated problem, I suppose, or it's involved, but then so are the issues. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I love about that fact is that you're impacting beyond just what you're doing in, in terms of environment, right? You're really making people start to communicate and come together. What, what I really love about my work is that no one day is, is the same. Like maybe one day I'm talking with little kids and then the next day I'm, you know, talking with a government person and the next day with like a, a very renowned scientist. Um, but then when I see these people come together, when I see the scientists talking with a fisherman or when I see, you know, the, the person from the government maybe, you know, talking with one of the kids that we work with, when I see that we're creating those linkages, I mean, that's something that that I feel extremely honored to be part of. Can you talk me through your process for involving local small-scale fishermen and, and local politicians? How do you get them to, to buy into marine conservation? We had this magnificent story of, of one of the fishermen we were working with called Peter. And he was on board the fishing boats and he was working with our sea turtle project. So every time a sea turtle would, would come on board, instead of consuming the sea turtle meat like they used to do in the past, he would help out measuring the sea turtle and researching the sea turtle to provide data and then releasing the sea turtle back in the water. And, and of course, initially his friends would say, you know, you're crazy. <laughs> what are you doing? But then after the third sea turtle that he was measuring and releasing, his friends would come up and say, hey, can I help you out? So it, it really is about creating that local leadership that will generate this huge momentum on the ground. And that's how we've been working with the fishermen in the past few years. It's really about translating what you're doing across sectors, I, I would guess, which is how you, you engage people ultimately. I'm curious if you can share some numbers or, or examples of the impact that all your work has had on the giant manta population in Peru. There's been about 250,000 people engaged throughout the years that we've been working on. And this in terms of citizen scientists that are actively collecting data that can lead then to management. Um, this in terms of youth, for example, that are having their own youth-led initiatives. In terms of teachers that are actively engaging ocean issues within their school curriculum. And in addition to that, I'm, I'm definitely extremely proud of the fact that we've been able to work with these people to create uh, policies that can help guide management so and, and decisions that can help guide management. So the, like the fact that the government legally protected giant manta rays or legally protected critically endangered sawfish, which is this amazing ray that you would even find prehistoric almost. So having those kind of, of things beyond specific um, numbers are, are also something that we're extremely proud of. 
beyond that, I'm really looking forward to seeing how community-based ecotourism can continue to be strengthened in benefit of communities, but also of, of manta conservation. Inspired by all the work she does with students and kids, Kirsten is optimistic about the future of marine conservation. What is at the heart of your your passion or your optimism? I mean, what does get you up each day, you know, motivated to fight for marine conservation? I think that what really, really inspires me is seeing how I, as an individual, I can help create some sort of change in the world. How, how when when I identify like a problem and then, you know, work really, really hard to find the solution and, and to get the solution together with so many other people and, and so many other people come on board and we all take the solution as ours and we all take the work as ours. I think that's what really inspires me creating those those types of changes and um, or seeing, you know, one of our first volunteers of our Sea Turtle Project were these four to five-year-old kids that now are around 16 years old. You, you recruited kids that were smaller than the sea turtles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and these kids have run their own environmental campaigns and their voices within their community. So seeing those kind of changes are what really um, motivates me. Um, so, so I wanted to ask, uh, and, and I think this is a funny question because you're so young, but what does the next generation of conservation look like to you? The next generation, I think they are going to have this more comprehensive approach and this approach more in terms of of really having science as as a tool to solve issues like sustainable development issues that we're facing. They have, I think, uh, a keen interest to really work with people as well. But just in addition to that, I, I think also, and this is something that I always mention, is the fact that for me, young people are not the future. For me, young people are actually the present and, and they can create change starting from now. And and we see this, you know, we saw this in, in the four-year-old kids that were patrolling the beaches with this. I, I see it, I see it in, in my eight-year-old daughter, right? Like kids have a voice, young people have a voice, and they can start using it right now. They they don't need to wait to be adults. Like that that's awesome. What piece of advice would you give to the average person about how they can help keep our planet perpetual? I always say that if we could all identify a problem, if if we could identify one single challenge that we would like to contribute to, either if it's, you know, reducing our carbon footprint, if it's trying to make sure that we have reduced uh, pollution to our oceans, if we can promote reduction and overexploitation of the oceans. If there's one single thing that we can think about doing and that we really put our complete minds and, and soul into solving that issue, imagine the different world that we would have if every single person would really try to create one change to one specific challenge that the planet is facing. I mean, for me, that would definitely make the planet perpetual. Yeah, that is a really inspiring vision of, of every person on Earth trying to solve one problem. It would change things completely. That was the inspiring conservation biologist, Kirsten Forsberg. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. To learn more about Kirsten's work and how you can help make the planet perpetual, visit planetaoceano.org. Be sure to check out the other episodes of the series with Sylvia Earle, Pablo Garcia Borboroglu, 
and Andrew McGonigal. You can learn about the next generation of Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureates at rolex.org. Thanks for listening.